Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here. We do not have John Vecchioni. He is uh, he is off either fishing or uh, on his way to uh, on his way to New Orleans or something for uh, for an oral argument, something like that. Uh, but uh, but even better, don't tell John I said that. Even better, we have uh, a Jeanette Brown uh, here, my colleague at NCLA, who's senior litigation uh, counsel, to talk about a couple of different matters that she's been involved with over the last month. Welcome back to Administrative Static, Jeanette. Thank you. It's great to be here. And for our uh, for our listeners in Colorado, Jeanette lived in Colorado for uh, for some time. So our, our thirteen years and five years before that. Yeah, I'd say I think that counts. So that's a, that's a good long stretch. Uh, so so we have a, a not quite native Coloradan, but uh, but but someone as who close knows. as it gets there. That's right. That's right. You have a have a lot of uh, a lot of people who move there. Uh, so the first matter I wanted to talk about is this uh, petition for panel rehearing and rehearing on bonk that you filed uh, in um, in the case of Choice Refrigerants v. Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. So um, what is the uh, what is the issue here and why would NCLA jump into a case at the on bonk stage? Sure. So the issue here is uh, at the end of 2020, in December of 2020, as part of an appropriations bill, Congress decided that the EPA would get to determine who continues to use hydrofluorocarbons, which are used for refrigerants and other specific purposes. So air conditioners, refrigerators, that kind of usage. Exactly. Um, But Congress gave no guidance to the EPA on who should be able to do that. So what Congress said essentially was, look, what we're going to do is shrink this market down. This United States market is going to shrink from where it is now to 15% of its current level. EPA, you go figure out who gets to keep playing and in what capacity. Um, and we have a problem with that. So so five out of six of these uses or, or people who use them have to have to go away. And Congress isn't willing to bite the bullet and say who uh, who doesn't get to use them anymore. It just leaves that up to EPA. Exactly. Congress set out a few priorities for roughly two percent of the usage of the of this product for five years. But other than that, ninety some percent of the product is left up to the EPA to decide who can continue to make these products in the United States, which is not that common, and who can continue to in import them and in what capacity. So who is Choice Refrigerants and and why were they harmed by this uh, decision? Sure. Choice Refrigerants is an American company, small company in Alfreda, Georgia. Um, They have been in this business for some time. They have a patent on a specific blend of this product that helps with refrigerations, very popular. Um, They entered in this business and began developing these products as a way to replace ozone depleting chemicals, which were previously used in refrigeration. So they thought they were doing a good thing. They came in as the good guy. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And they're harmed um, in a number of ways. Once the F 
once the EPA got control of this, um, they decided first that not only would they ratchet back what existent um, market participants could use, but they would set aside some amount of the product for new entrants into the market, which wasn't part of Congress's statute at all. So even if you were going to logically divide up the market proportionally and then just ratchet it down, the EPA interrupted that scheme and said, we're just going to take some off the top and give them to other people that we select. So they're harmed by that sort of generically and right off the bat. But the other thing that the EPA did, and of course, it's a an administrative agency, so there were multiple rulemakings involved. But the other thing that the EPA did is take some of the market share that should belong to choice by virtue of its product and actually gave that market share to, number one, choice's import agent, who's not in the refrigeration business at all, just as an importer. Right. So if they have that, then they can just, they could auction it off to the highest bidder or something like that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And the other thing that that the EPA did that's even more mind-boggling, given the fact that this statute, by the way, is called the American Manufacturing Innovation Act, (laughs) they took some of the allowances associated with Choice's product and gave them to a Chinese-owned company that had pirated Choice's patent. So let me get this straight. A statute that's named after American innovation took market share away from the American company that was innovating the product and gave it to the Chinese knockoff company? That's correct. That's, un- well, I sh- shouldn't say it's unbelievable. That's sort of par for the course for the administrative <laughs> state, I guess. They make these decisions. So what's the legal problem with what the EPA is doing here? I mean, it sounds horrible from a policy standpoint, but EPA makes bad decisions all the time that are perfectly lawful. So wh- why is this one unlawful? This one is unlawful because it violates the vesting clause of the Constitution that says Congress has the legislative power in the federal government. Congress, because that power is vested in that branch, can't give that power away. And they give that power away when they, for example, allow an agency to determine the objective and the policies by which it's going to implement a statute. Uh, So here, the EPA gets to completely design the cap and trade program with a few directions that are unrelated to how allowances are allocated or given to the market participants. Um, And they get to continually revise that as the market share is ratcheted down. And they've admitted that they may seek one to five different methods of doing this over the next several years. And there's no way for for folks who are in the business to anticipate what those Uh, are going to be? Well, logically, there is, but not very much in advance. Logically, as each ratchet down happens in the market, EPA has to publish a rule that says, okay, this is how we're going to do this next phase of the phase down. Um, The problem is they don't, what they say in one rule about the framework of how they're going to do it, they may take a different approach or slightly Uh, take an unanticipated interpretation of that rule when they actually implement it. Um, So you can, you can have a sense, but it's not in time for adequate really business planning. Um, And you don't really have a lot of say, obviously you can submit a comment to the EPA, which our clients did, but they're free to ignore it. Sure. Which they also did. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I shouldn't laugh because this is this is you know uh, serious business for our for our clients. But uh, the what does the Supreme Court say about this? I mean, has there been? Uh, uh, I understand that the, these sort of non delegation arguments haven't haven't made it uh, you know, very far in in recent years. Do we think that the current Supreme Court is going to be more open to this? And and before that, obviously, you filed this in the D.C. Circuit. Is is the D.C. Circuit likely to be open to a, a non-delegation style argument? You can be optimistic. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm not terribly optimistic about yeah. the D.C. Circuit, particularly as it relates to the EPA. Um, so we had to file there because this statute got wrapped into the Clean Air Act um, sort of processes. We had to file there. In terms of the Supreme Court, you know, yes, the Supreme Court hasn't actually uh, struck down a statute under non-delegation principles for a very long time. However, there are definitely indications from multiple of the justices in various opinions over the last 10 years or so, um, and they're increasing, that justices are more willing to look at this, that they think that this matter needs attention again. So I am optimistic that the Supreme Court will turn to this matter in the next few up to five years I mean, I'm hoping with our case, but <laughs> sure, absolutely, no reason not to be uh, optimistic uh, about that. I do think this case is particularly egregious because the delegation here was completely unguided. They basically, they really just said, "Go create a cap and trade program," with absolutely no indication of how the allowances should be made in the market. That is unlike prior instances where there were market ratchet, ratchet, ratcheting down of a market, for example, in the ozone depleting mm -hmm. chemicals. Um, well, that's helpful then, I would think, for, for you to be able to point to, hey, when they've done this before, Congress has been fairly uh, structured about it, if that's the right word, or fairly, uh, I don't know if specific is the right word, but detailed, something like that. They at least provided direction. And not surprisingly, that direction said, the market should come down proportionally. Existing market participants should structure their business down proportionally. Not we're setting some aside for new entrants, not we're giving some to import agents and pirates. It goes to the existing market participants, um, lawful market participants. Right. Um, and so, so that also was part of what the market participants expected when the rule came out, um, that the EPA acknowledged that Congress likely had that in their mind when they passed the statute and that it was sort of following that, but not really. Hmm. So I could, I could imagine that if you thought that you were going to be in this business and you needed to ratchet down slowly from your current level of production to 15% of your current level of production, that would require one business strategy. If the EPA was going to come through and say, well, you get zero allocation, so you have to shut down immediately. That's a different business strategy. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you don't know, worse, if you don't know at some point in that time that the EPA is going to shift, it's hard to plan a business strategy that lets your business survive, particularly for a small company like, like our client, Choice Refrigerants. It's one thing if you're you know, 3M or DuPont or one of those other mega corporations. It's a whole different thing if you're a small American business. This is what you do. You've innovated this product, and this has been your your ticket to to success is having this product. Well, uh, Jeanette, thank you for bringing this uh, to NCLA's attention and to the DC Circuit's attention. Hopefully, this en banc petition will will get their get their attention, and 
at least uh, tee it up for consideration by the Supreme Court, if nothing else. If nothing else. And, you know, we'll find another way to bring the challenge under a new rule. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here, and I am speaking with Senior Litigation Counsel Jeanette Brown. We were just in the last segment uh, talking about the en banc brief that she and uh, Caitlin Chiraldi here at NCLA uh, put together uh, in a case against the EPA. But that's not the only case you've been working on this month, Jeanette. You've been you've been busy. Yeah, something uh, happened to my calendar management. <laughs> <laughs> so so you and Caitlin have also been working on uh, on a um, on a, an amicus brief in an en banc case uh, at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in a case called Consumers Research v. Federal Communications Commission. Uh, can you tell our listeners what that case is about? Sure, absolutely. That case is about the question of whether how and how the FCC manages what's called the Universal Service Fund is constitutional, and particularly the question about whether or not there are limits Um, as should be required, on what the FCC can do in that regard. The Universal Service Fund, like so many other legislative ideas, started out with a very sort of admiral concept of we need to provide telecommunication services to people in high cost, for example, rural areas, and to people who can't afford it. The goal is we want to have a minimum universal level of telecommunication services for the benefit of the consumers and the citizens of this country, the population of this country, so that they can communicate when there's an emergency or whatever the issue might be. Um, And so it started off very admirably. What happened, though? And this is rural broadband and things like that that the FCC might be involved in promoting? Yeah, it's telecommunication and information services all get incorporated into the Universal Service Fund. Okay. And what happened is in 1996... Um, as part of or sort of following on the deregulation of telecommunications and sort of fallout from the Ma Bell era, um, Congress realized it had to change the way the Universal Service Fund was being collected in order to keep, in that case, the the market fair for the participants. Uh, And so the the Congress said to the FCC, okay, what you need to do is have a universal service fund, which, by the way, um, we're not going to define for you. You get to define on a quote unquote evolving basis, um, according to keeping up with technology and public interest, convenience and necessity. Um, and as you're doing that and as you're implementing that fund, you should consider a couple of these policies or not and whatever other policies you think are relevant. Um, and as so very, very constraining there right. in terms of, of what Congress said. Okay. Yeah. The loopholes are larger than this, than the regulation. Yeah. Um, so as a result today, the FCC collects 
almost $10 billion per year mm. from American telecommunications service receivers. Um, and it ultimately is a regressive tax. And so, people can see this tax on their bill, right? I mean, there's, isn't there like a USF service fee on, on your monthly? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know if it's a cable bill or your phone bill or whatever, but. Yeah. I mean, one of the benefits, I suppose, of the act is that it had to go from what were previously sort of undisclosed subsidies to now disclosed subsidies. Um, but it functions as a regressive tax almost because, you know, the person, if two people have a cell phone, regardless of what their situation is, they get charged the same. Um, and so it doesn't really take into account um, any of the things that would normally be considered in taxation. So it's so, not a percentage of your bill. It's a set monthly fee. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so this, uh, this was under attack in the fifth circuit, um, a panel in the fifth circuit, um, originally concluded that this was fine, that again, going back to the discussion from our last segment, this doesn't have any non-delegation problems. Congress gave some instruction to the FCC, so that's fine. They're as long as there's some instruction, that's enough. That's right. basically it. And yeah. that was almost exactly what they said. They said, so long as there is a, no, the standard is no guidance whatsoever. And so if there is something beyond no guidance whatsoever, that's sufficient. Um, and that was a uh, unanimous panel. And nonetheless, the Fifth Circuit has agreed to hear this issue en banc. Um, so this is unlike the last case we were talking about where you're hoping to get the D.C. Circuit to agree to hear it en banc. Here, the Fifth Circuit has already agreed to hear it en banc. Yep, we're one step beyond. And so this amicus brief, uh, what are the arguments that you make uh, in this amicus brief as to you know, why this, why, why the court should set aside this fund? Sure. We make two sort of um, broad arguments. The first argument is because this operates like a tax. And even if it doesn't operate like a tax, because it allows the FCC to essentially self-fund its own pet project to the tune of $10 billion a year, um, it touches on core, which is which is many times the size of the FCC's budget that Congress gives it annually. Twenty five times. Twenty five times the size. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So, because the tax and the spend power are core legislative powers, we argue that those delegations, in particular, Congress giving away that power, is particularly problematic and warrants close examination. That's the first argument. The second argument we made essentially is look. The current iteration of how courts look at non-delegation needs some overhauling, um, and the court should reconsider it. As we said, the Supreme Court has indicated that some of the Supreme Court justices have indicated that they're interested in that. But even under the current precedent, even under the lax standard that exists today, the dual layer, the layered delegation to the FCC of, number one, you get to decide what universal service is. You get to decide what it is that has to be provided to all telecommunications consumers. And then on top of that, you also get to decide what policies you should advance while doing so. That, that layered delegation enhanced with revenue raising and dispersing power. Well, you get to decide how much money to spend on that policy. So, I mean, that's basically all the pieces of, of the policy function that Congress would usually supply. But what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? How much are you going to spend on it? The agency gets to do all three of those things here. Exactly. And so 
our argument is with that layered delegation, this is even more egregious than the last time the Supreme Court struck down statutes for transferring illegally, unconstitutionally transferring legislative power to agencies. So uh, aside from the self-funding aspect of it, what else is 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 wrong with or or was there another argument that you make in the in the brief? So the you say that um, just looking at at the brief here, you say that the current non-delegation doctrine rests on legal fictions that are no longer justifiable. What 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 is what are some of the legal fictions that uh, that non-delegation rests on? I mean, the, for me, the one that that I like to come back to is this idea that delegation, just the term itself, I find very misleading because. When you say that that you have the power to delegate something, I think everyone understands. Look, if I'm if I'm in charge of something and I delegate it to my deputy, and I change my mind, or my deputy is doing a lousy job, or or is sort of taking it in a direction that I didn't intend, I can say, you know what, never mind. Like, let me take that back. I'm just going to do that myself. That's what a delegation is. But that's not what's happening here, is it? That is absolutely not what happens when Congress gives away its power. Congress cannot call that power back without bicameralism and presentment. So the Congress of 1996 that gave this power to the FCC has bound the current Congress unless they can get together majorities in both the houses and get the president to agree that an administrative agency should no longer have some of the power that's currently in the executive branch. Um, and if they can't get the president to agree to that, then they need super majorities. That's not a delegation. That's really a temporary transfer, potentially maybe, permanent maybe trans- permanent transfer. Yeah. Yes. And we like to say that it's a divestment of legislative power because that's a that's a term that's more accurate. It, it, because it suggests that you may never get it back. Because once you give power to the executive branch, they're not known for wanting to turn loose of that power. It's it's pretty much a one-way uh, direction on that. Uh, well, and which the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit has recognized, this is exactly why the Constitution has separation of powers, to, to prevent that sort of aggregation of power in any particular branch. And so if you, if you allow not only creating the legislation, but executing the legislation um, to move to the executive branch, you're interfering with that separation of powers. So what do you think the Fifth Circuit should do here? What's, what's the solution? Well, the technical request in front of them is to grant a petition for review of the agency action. So what the Fifth Circuit should do here is um, allow a review of the FCC action and ultimately hold that this specific statute, which is Section 254 um, of uh, 47 U.S.C. Section 254, is unconstitutional because it gives too much power to the FCC. Um, you know, there are all sorts of practical implications that go with that. Uh, but I, but that's absolutely the right answer. And I think that um, Supreme Court has sort of taken on the uh, mantle of making the right decision in difficult circumstances. And the Fifth Circuit, I think, is following in that lead. And that's what they need to do here. Well, hopefully they will. I, I don't know. The Fifth Circuit itself can't change the intelligible principle test that the Supreme Court has has come up with uh, that that leads to things like the district court decision here you were talking about, where they essentially said, "Well, as long as there's some guidance, that's enough." Um, that's not real. I'm not sure that that's actually a faithful interpretation of the current intelligible it's, principle test. It's not, and that's part of the reason I think that the the court granted on bonk review is um, the the panel that heard this in the first place 
created that no guidance whatsoever standard from a prior Fifth Circuit case relating to the SEC, I think that probably the Fifth Circuit wants to rein that back in and say, look, let's at least give this doctrine the teeth that it had, um, if not go, you know, I don't think that the, I don't think that the Fifth Circuit would have to overrule Supreme Court in this regard. There is plenty of precedent from earlier on about what a delegation needs to be um, and what requirements it has. So a couple of the other points that we made in the brief was We've got 10 seconds, so be quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was that that agencies weren't going to do much, and that's just not longer, no longer the truth. Yeah, for sure. NCLALegal.org if you want to read uh, either one of these briefs. Jeanette, thank you so much for being on Administrative Static and sharing your wisdom on these cases with us. 